I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be looking at the last um, example that Jesus gives us in relation to this righteousness, um, in relation to Torah or the law. So Matthew chapter 5, verse, um, sorry, I'm in the book of Mark right now. Matthew 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But I say to you, sorry, I am totally on the wrong verse there. Let me start again. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, or better translated, you therefore must be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. Let me pray for us. Father, as we look to your word now, we truly ask that by your Spirit you would illumine our minds Speak to our hearts and allow the truths that are here to penetrate us in such a way that we would walk in them, that it would become a part of who we are, and that we would look to our Savior Jesus, who is the greatest example of this truth itself. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if I were to ask you, um, what is the hardest teaching of Jesus, I wonder what responses we might hear. I wonder if there would be a a few similar ones, um, or if there would be a large diversity of responses. The teaching we looked at last week may be one such teaching, where Jesus tells us to not resist the evil person and to turn the other cheek. Or it may be Jesus telling us to pluck out our eye and cut off our hand, then to lust after another person and commit adultery in our heart. Or maybe it's the famous words, take up your cross and follow me. For anyone who would lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it, but whoever would save his life will lose it. There are many hard teachings of Jesus that at first glance actually don't sit well with us. In fact, when people suggest that, uh, that people become Christians or are Christians because they are looking for comfort and ease, they literally have no idea what they're talking about. And they most definitely have never read the Sermon on the Mount. You will not find a single teaching as ethically demanding as the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It is the only place in any document where there is a call for us 
to love our enemies. You see, the teachings of Jesus can be hard and even painful. And here's why. Because love can be painful. There are a lot of hard teachings by Jesus, but objectively speaking, there is no harder teaching than the one Jesus calls us to here in Matthew 5, 43-47. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you or abuse you. This is, objectively speaking, as Pennington says, the culminating ethical command given to us from Jesus. See, it's not a coincidence that as Jesus unpacks for us this greater righteousness than that of the Pharisees, which he calls his followers to, that here in chapter 5, he finishes with the theme of love. But not just any general kind of love, specifically love for one's enemies. Love is central to all of Christianity's moral teaching and vision, and especially love for enemies, because the greatest example we have of love is Jesus laying down his life for his enemies. And so this morning we're going to dig deep, Lord willing, into what Jesus means when he calls us to love our enemies and to pray for our enemies. And just as the other sermons, we're, we're going to follow the same structure that, uh, that's within each example that Jesus provides. So you have the, the Torah statement, right? Where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. And then you have Jesus's explanation or interpretation of the true intentions of the law. But I say to you, and then he provides the practical examples or illustrations to capture his interpretation. And so the first thing we see here is the Torah statement. Now, here, it is a little different than the others, which we'll see. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said. Here's the Torah statement. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, there are two parts to this statement. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the first part is found in the Old Testament. Uh, specifically in Leviticus 19.18. But the second part, and hate your enemy, is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. So what's going on here? Well, most likely, hate your enemy was, according to Pennington, derived from putting together a number of other biblical texts and ideas. And then, with those ideas, they came to the wrong conclusions. For example, there are many passages in the Psalms where the people, the covenant people of God, are praying for God to avenge them against their enemies. Also, in Deuteronomy 7, God warned Israel uh, not to allow their enemies to remain in the land, for, for if they did, they would become a snare to the people of Israel. And that's why you have the conquest in Joshua. And this probably led the scribes and the Pharisees to the conclusion that they were justified in hating their enemies. But their conclusion was wrong. In fact, the Old Testament did give instruction on how one as an individual was to relate to his or her enemy. So for example, in Exodus 23, 4-5, Reread this. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. 
If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So there's clear instruction in the Old Testament of how you are to relate to your enemy. Proverbs 24, 17 to 18 says this, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. I remember the day when, um, when the U.S. finally uh, was able to get Osama bin Laden. And in one sense, there's a, a sense of joy that justice has been done but I remember all the Americans lining up in front of the White House, cheering and rejoicing. I remember we were watching on the news, and my dad immediately quoted Proverbs 24, 17 to 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Not only that, when the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 exhorts us to not take vengeance... He quotes from Proverbs 25, 21 to 22. If your enemy is hungry, what should you do? Give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Remember, I've made this point over and over again. Jesus is not out to contradict or undermine the Old Testament. It's not as though God was okay with an Israelite hating his enemy and then Jesus shows up and says, that's no longer okay. You see, what Jesus is doing here, what he's doing here is he's correcting a, a wrong interpretation that seemed to creep in the, into the DNA of the Jewish people, which was taught and promoted by the scribes and the Pharisees. Or as Spurgeon said, the words and hate your enemy were a parasitical growth upon God's law. See, this thinking, just to love your neighbor and hate your enemies, justified the Pharisees in hating the Gentiles and especially their Roman oppressors. And Jesus here is going to challenge such a notion. Now, Jesus does want to make clear that we are called to love our neighbors. That is very clear. That's Old Testament and New Testament. But what Jesus wants to point out is that sometimes our neighbors are our enemies. As G.K. G. K. Chesterton once said, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. And so after Jesus gives the Torah statement, he then provides his own explanation or interpretation of the law. And you see that in verse 44. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. And here, once again, Jesus is getting to the heart. He's asking us to examine our hearts to see what the disposition of our hearts are towards our own enemies. Do we actually love them? Or do our hearts reveal hatred toward our enemies? Or do we simply tolerate 
our enemies. You see, it's not a coincidence that this teaching follows right after the instruction to to not resist the evil person and to turn the other cheek. See, do not resist an evil person is a negative command. It's a call to not take vengeance against the person who has wronged you. But to love your enemies is a positive command, which is actually far more difficult. You see, it's possible to turn the other cheek, to not seek vengeance, yet the disposition of your heart could still be one of hatred for the person who has wronged you. But now here, Jesus takes it to another level. It's not enough to simply have restraint against your enemy. You must love your enemy. As Augustine said, many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. That's a whole other ballgame. Now we need to ask, what does it actually mean to love? What does it actually mean to love our enemies? Well, the biblical understanding of love definitely involves affection, but it can't be reduced to that. It's more than affections, but uh, it's, it's really the idea of seeking the good or the well-being of the other, but it, it flows from affections. You love someone, and therefore you seek their well-being, their good. I actually think Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount makes this more explicit. In Luke six twenty-seven to 28, uh, we read this. This is Jesus' words, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So so to love one's enemy at its core is to desire their good and to seek their good. To desire their good and to seek their good. Now can you see why this teaching is the hardest of all of Jesus' teachings? Which of us desire the good of our enemies. We're not naturally inclined to do this whatsoever. You see, Jesus isn't simply calling us to tolerate our enemies. He's calling us to desire their actual good. That when they curse us, we don't simply restrain ourselves from cursing them back, but we go further. We seek to bless them. As John Stott says, if they call down disaster and catastrophe upon our heads, expressing in words their wish for our downfall, we must retaliate. We must retaliate by calling down heaven's blessing upon them, declaring in words that that we wish them nothing but good. This is why Dostoevsky once said, love in action is more terrible than love in dreams. Love in action is more terrible than love in dreams because true love done in action can be terrible. It's costly and painful at times. It's not comfortable. It doesn't make you feel good inside. It can be terrible. And that's, Not true simply when it comes to our enemies. That can be true in relation to those who are not our enemies. Loving a a wayward child 
caring for your mother in her elderly age, loving your spouse when there's unresolved conflict. Love can be painful even when it's directed towards those we tend to love naturally. But now, also to our enemies? That will require a sacrifice and a servanthood like no other. Like that of Jesus. Now notice that Jesus also adds that we are to pray for those who persecute us. To pray for those. If you take some time to contemplate those words, you'll discover just how radical and how hard that statement is. Prayer is hard and difficult even when you're praying for those you naturally love and care about. Prayer requires incredible discipline and self-control. We know this experientially. I mean, how easy it is uh, to not find time to pray for the things we really care about. How easy it is when we are in prayer uh, for our minds to wander off into other things. And that's when we're praying for the things we naturally care about, like our friends and our family and, and church family and our missionaries. But here... Jesus is calling us to pray for those who persecute or abuse us. This is why Christosom saw our responsibility to pray for our enemies as the very highest summit of self-control. Isn't that interesting? To pray for our enemies is the very highest summit of self-control. But when it comes to our enemies, what are we to pray for exactly? Well, if love is to seek the well-being and the good of the other, then we're to pray ultimately for the good of our enemies. And the highest good that we can pray for them is what? Their salvation. Is, not, is this not what Stephen demonstrated when he was being stoned to death by his enemies in Acts 7, 59-60? And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, don't judge them. Show them mercy. Show them your love. Don't hold what they've done against me, against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. See, I think our hearts are often the opposite of what we see here with Stephen. I think most of the time we do, in fact, want God to hold our enemy's sin against them. We want justice. Now, before we go any further in the passage, I think it's an important question to ask Who is your enemy? Who is your enemy? personal enemy. Now, as followers of Jesus, we can say that anyone who stands in opposition and hostility towards Christ's people is an enemy. But as individuals, we also have personal enemies. It could be a specific ethnicity. Maybe your ethnicity or culture has suffered greatly at the hands of another culture or ethnicity. It could be a family member. Or a former friend who betrayed you. It could be those on the opposing side of the political spectrum. It could be a specific politician. Who is your enemy that Jesus is calling you to love? Like for example, and this is more of a revelation of my own heart. 
But I can confess that I have felt real hatred toward our Prime Minister over the last two years. Like genuine hatred. And my question for us and for me is this. If our Prime Minister just happened to show up here on a Sunday morning, how would we respond to him? Would we tolerate his presence and be so happy and relieved after he had left? Or would we go out of our way to love him, honor him, and bless him? Despite the fact that so much of what he stands for is in direct opposition to Jesus Christ and the church, how would we respond? Jonah had an enemy. And their names were the Ninevites. And God called Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach to them and to call them to repentance. And as you know, Jonah didn't want to go. He fled as far as he could. But in the end, as you know how the story unfolds, God got him to Nineveh. And Jonah reluctantly told the people that judgment was coming. And the people, despite Jonah's reluctant preaching, actually repented. And as Bev read for us in Jonah 4, we're told that Jonah was angry. He was angry at the fact that the people of Nineveh repented. As Jonah 4, 1-4 says, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, literally in the Hebrew, uh, some of you may have a footnote there um, on, in your Bible. And if you go to the bottom of the page, you'll see what Jonah was actually thinking. It's more literally translated like this. It displeased Jonah and it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. What was evil to Jonah? God showing love and mercy to the Ninevites was evil to Jonah because of what the Ninevites had done to his own people, Israel. They were the Assyrians. They were the people who horrifically afflicted Israel with suffering before the Babylonians. Jonah wanted vengeance, not mercy and love for his enemies. That's precisely what he tells God next. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That is, I know, God, that if I go to Nineveh and preach repentance and the people repent, you're going to show them mercy and love. And I don't want that. I want you to strike them down. They're my enemy. You see, Jonah actually accuses God of evil because he thinks it's wrong for God to show mercy, to show love to such a wicked people like the Ninevites who were the enemies of Jonah. You see, the mercy and love of God is so beyond our comprehension that we can actually interpret it as unjust and evil. The love of God is scandalous. And in Jesus calling us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, he's calling us to a divine love. He's calling us to reflect the very heart of God. 
And that's precisely what he shows us next in verse 45. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, when we learn to love our enemies as the children of God, then we reflect our Father who is in heaven. We reveal that we are sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father because we reflect Him in the ways in which we respond to and love our enemies. As John Stott says, we can demonstrate whose sons or daughters we are only when we exhibit the family likeness, only when we love with an all-embracing love like His. Now, you may not see Inez and think, well, that's definitely Peter's little girl. She doesn't look a whole lot like me. But you would think that's definitely Gracie's little girl. By her familial relation to Gracie, she reflects in some capacity of in some capacity, Gracie. Now, if you were to spend time with Inez, you might start to see certain things about her that are like her dad, all her great qualities. And it's the same for God's sons and daughters. If we don't remotely reflect our Heavenly Father in any fashion, I don't think we can claim Him to be our Father. None of us, of course, reflect Him perfectly. Only Jesus alone does that. But there needs to be some kind of reflection. Now, in Jesus calling us to love our enemies and to reflect our Heavenly Father, He illustrates the love that our Heavenly Father has toward his enemies by showing that God allows his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust as Jesus said for he makes his son rise I love that I love that Jesus makes explicit who the son belongs to his son for he that is God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, we don't understand the significance of this because, well, we have grocery stores and all that stuff, but if you're an agrarian society, you need both sun and rain to be able to survive. God, in His love and kindness, makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What an incredible display of God's love towards His enemies. The sun rose this morning. And who did God's Son rise upon over the city of Toronto? Murderers? Idolaters? Adulterers? Abusers? Liars? Thieves? The sexually immoral? Sex traffickers? God-haters? Revilers? The politically corrupt? We could go on and on. God, in His love, allowed the sun to rise upon these kinds of individuals. That's scandalous. God has allowed the sun to rise upon our Prime Minister this morning. None of them thank Him for it, nor do they worship Him for it. In fact, most don't even acknowledge Him, but day in and day out, He allows the warmth of the sun to rise upon the wicked. I mean, just think about all the good things that
that God in His love allows the wicked and the unrighteous to experience. From the enjoyment of food and drink, the sound of music, the beauty of nature, the goodness of friendship, the pleasures of romantic love, the joy of children. We could go on and on. The wicked experience those things as well. God on a daily basis is pouring His love out on evil and unrighteous people. And this is why Jesus says that when we love our enemies, we will be sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. We will reflect Him. See, every morning when you wake up and see the sun, you should remind yourself of God's love for you. But also, of God's love for your enemies. Because just as God has allowed the sun to rise upon you, so He has allowed the sun to rise upon your enemies. Now, I'm not suggesting that God will not also judge the wicked. He will. But remember, God desires for the unrighteous and the wicked to come to Him, to find the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. As Ezekiel 33:11 tells us, this is God speaking, say to them as I live declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? Remember, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. See, every time the sun rises, It's a call. It's God proclaiming to the world. It's a call to the wicked to repent and to come to Him, the God of boundless love. See, this is the God we're called to reflect. This is the righteousness that Jesus calls His disciples to live according to. He gets to the heart, to the inner person, and He looks at each of us and says... Do you love your enemies the way your heavenly Father loves your enemies? And for a Jewish audience, there is no doubt that at the forefront of many of the people's minds would have been their evil Gentile oppressors, the Romans, or the tax collectors. Those people who they considered to be traitors to their own people. Which is probably why the next thing Jesus does is provide two simple illustrations with reference to both the Gentiles and also tax collectors. But I want to make sure you see this, okay? He's contrasting God's love with that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, God's love is shown to his enemies and he never receives anything in return. Whereas the Pharisees only feel obligated to love their neighbors because in loving their neighbors and in loving those who greet them, they receive something in return. And they are able to feel justified in hating their enemies. So what does Jesus do? Well, look at verse 46 to 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You see, Jesus is acknowledging 
that sinners, like Gentile pagans and tax-collecting traitors, are able to love and greet those who love and greet them back. Fallen, sinful man is not incapable of loving. Total depravity doesn't mean that fallen humans can't do anything good at all, but rather that even the good they do is tainted in some capacity by sin. Unredeemed sinners can still love to a certain capacity. But all human love, as Stott says, is contaminated, contam- contaminated to some degree by the impurities of self-interest. But the call to love our enemies is a call in which there is no self-interest. And so Jesus says, if you love those who love you, okay, if you do that, tap yourself on the shoulder, then you're on par with the tax collectors. And if you greet only those who greet you, then you're on par with the pagan Gentiles. And that's why the two piercing questions confront each of us. What reward do you have if you love like a tax collector? What more are you doing if you greet those who want to greet you just like the Gentiles do? It's almost like Jesus is saying, whoop de doo Even the worst of sinners are capable of loving in that way. I have no doubt that Adolf Hitler loved his children. See, this is a major turn of events, especially for the Pharisees and the scribes. Remember, they believed the Gentiles and tax collectors were the worst of sinners. But in Jesus comparing their love to that of the Gentiles and tax collectors, he was ultimately declaring that the scribes and the Pharisees have a righteousness on par with those they deem to be the most wicked. Really, what he was saying is, You Pharisees and scribes are actually the tax collectors and the Gentiles. Which would have been very offensive. But what about us? Is our love merely a human love, like the love that pagans and tax collectors show? Or is our love a divine love, like that of our heavenly father. I think Alfred Plummer summarizes it so well when he says, to return evil for good is devilish. If someone does you good and you return them with evil, that's like devilish. That's like being like the devil. To return good for good is human. You return good for good, you're a human. To return good for evil is divine. To return good for evil is divine. And this is why, this is why there is no higher apex of virtue than this command. This is the call of our Savior, to love with a divine love, to love not only the lovable, but the unlovable. And here is the apex of this righteousness that Jesus calls his followers to, that is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And remember this. Jesus provides the example of God's love for his enemies with the rising of the sun and the giving of the rain. The love of God revealed through the creation. 
But this isn't even the greatest display of God's love for his enemies. We know this. Jesus and his death on the cross for his enemies, that is the apex of divine love. As Paul says in Romans 5, 6-10, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, you might have the courage to die for a good person. But God, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, or you could say enemies, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? See, the only reason any of us here are followers of Jesus, redeemed by His blood, is because not only has God showered His love on us through the goodness of creation, but He has showered His love on us by sending forth His precious Son to die for us while we were still His enemies. And now we as followers of Jesus, blood-bought, redeemed children of God, have the honor and the divine call upon our lives to reflect our Savior in loving our enemies. Now I realize that there are individuals here who have experienced at different levels the evil of others. Some of us may not find this command super difficult right now because you don't really have any real enemies in some capacity. But for others, you have experienced such harm at the hands of another, it almost feels impossible to love your enemy. And you're probably wondering, how is this even possible? Or you're thinking, Peter, I really want to, but I feel like it's impossible. Like, where do I begin? Well, let me say a few things very briefly. The very fact that you desire to, but you feel like you can't, that is evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in your heart. If you didn't have the Spirit of Christ, you wouldn't even desire it. Not only that, you would hear a sermon like this and you would harden yourself against what's being said. So don't beat yourself up if you truly do desire it, but you feel like it's an impossible task. This world is dark, and I know many of you have suffered horrifically at the hands of another. And Jesus is not expecting that you just wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden you start loving the person who did evil against you. He knows how fragile we are. He knows our frame. But he is calling and inviting you to begin the journey in seeing your heart turn from hatred, bitterness, and to see your heart turn toward love. It will be a painful journey, but a journey that will allow you to reflect the love of your Heavenly Father, a journey that will lead to your wholeness and your flourishing, as Jesus says, be whole as your Heavenly Father 
is holy. And here's where I would say to begin. And this isn't revelatory. This is just simply the truth. You need to begin with prayer. Jesus tells us, pray. Pray. First, ask God to help you to love your enemies. Ask Him every day if you have to. And then secondly, fight to pray for your enemies. Because the more you pray for them, the harder it will truly be to hate them. Babylon is a world of hatred. A world in which the righteous thing to do is to get back at our enemies. But in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the righteous thing to do is to love our enemies and even lay down our lives for them. And I pray that our hearts and my heart would reflect that of Stephen, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And ultimately, reflect the heart of our Savior. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we once hated you and were in rebellion against you, that we once saw you as an enemy, you in your mercy and love came to us and showered us and overwhelmed us in your love through your precious Son, the Lord Jesus. And I pray, God, that you would give us that same heart for our own enemies. That you would give us a heart to seek their good, to bless them when they curse, and to pray for them when they persecute us. And I pray for those who may be here this morning who are hurting and struggling because they have been hurt by someone severely. I ask that you would come and comfort them, and by your grace you would help them to begin this journey of healing and restoration where they could truly look upon their enemy and have a heart full of love and pity towards them. Help us in this, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.